0: It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Always uh, good to be here. Absolutely. Some interesting things on the docket for this week, including a miscellaneous statutes, amendments, something or other. What what are we looking at here? (laughs)
1: Boy, oh boy, I tell you, if you were trying to come up with a title that might uh, cause people to uh, look away for fear of falling asleep, uh, you might call your piece of legislation the Miscellaneous Statutes <laughs> Amendment it's Act. It's exactly where I would hide a con- lot of con- attention.
0: Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> where I would hide controversial changes. That's right. It's sort of the opposite of the Patriot Act.
1: Um, and so uh, there was such an act uh, introduced uh, in the BC legislature uh, just yesterday. It's called Bill Eleven the 2021 Miscellaneous Statute Amendment Act. Uh, And there are at least a couple of things in here that I think are worth uh, talking about and being aware of. And I should say they're in here with all kinds of things, everything from uh, redefining the status of the Burrard thermal plant uh, to uh, changing uh, other miscellaneous uh, things, changing language about his and hers to persons and things of this sort. Uh, But Two of the uh, things tucked away in this act, uh, I think, do bear some discussion. Uh, One of the things in in this act uh, is an amendment to the Family Law Act, uh, and it is an amendment to the definition of the concept of, quote, family violence. And we've spoken about that uh, previously. And what's happened over the past few years is that the B.C. Family Law Act Uh, has uh, amended its definition of family violence to be extremely expansive to the point where it is no longer in accordance with what an ordinary person would think violence might be. And so this concept of family violence, which can impact on things like um, who's going to get access to the children, or should there be a protection order put in place, or should somebody get the exclusive use of the family home, Uh, has now been defined to include both things that ordinary people would think would amount to violence, like physically doing violent things to people, but uh, has been expanded to include things such as uh, emotional abuse or uh, unreasonable restrictions on a person's financial or personal autonomy Mm. or the intentional damage to property. And so, what that has produced uh, is a whole bunch of unnecessary family litigation uh, as people start to fight over whether something amounts to family violence. And you can well imagine why would you say to somebody, hey, for example, we've got some cases here, uh, your threat to close your dental practice in an email was family violence. Hmm. You might well imagine, well, hold on a minute, that's not family violence. Well indeed it was. Um, And that uh, case occupied some time in the B.C. Supreme Court. Other things that now meet this extremely expansive definition include things like spiritual abuse, which was a case involving a father who was uh, telling a mother that the child's actions were contrary to Scripture. That was found to be violent. Hmm. Um, Or indeed, derogatory language used in an email met the definition of family violence. Wow. Uh, Or, for example, a mother who... Uh, interfered with the father's access to children. Certainly not a good thing to be doing, but that is indeed family violence. And so by taking you know, a term like that, which has an English meaning, right? If you say to somebody, hey, a person is acting in a way that involves family violence, to most people, what's going to spring to mind would be you're violent. Indeed. Not, not you have threatened to close your dental practice uh, or uh you've uh you know interfered with somebody's financial autonomy by canceling their credit card right yeah. uh, or indeed property damage so you could imagine let's say a uh, uh a woman were to find that her husband was cheating on her uh and she rips up the wedding photos well she's engaged in the intentional damage to property therefore she's committed family violence and therefore a judge is required uh, to consider that and may issue a restraining order against her, protection order, or that might uh, impact on whether she would have access to the children, um, or indeed uh, somebody found that their uh, spouse had been, you know, spending money on the family credit card uh, to stay at a hotel with somebody, uh, and you cancelled the credit card, that might interfere with their financial autonomy, and so once again, you might find yourself uh, having committed family violence uh, and litigation ensues, and so Well, all of those things may not be desirable things, people should be emotionally supportive and uh, encourage others to engage in personal autonomy uh, and ought not to damage wedding photos or other personal property, all of those things are to be encouraged. Uh, The government, rather than what they did in this miscellaneous statute amendment act, which was to expand the concept of family violence, to now have it read that any of those various things would meet the definition with or without any intent to harm a family member. Um, hmm. so that would capture, for example, the ripped up the wedding photos. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, they should, if they think those are important considerations for determining who should get access to the children, for example, uh, call it something else, right? Call it yeah. something uh, which uh, an ordinary person would, Uh, agree that that term would be uh, appropriate to failing to be supportive or engaging in poor family conduct, something else. But by uh, defining words in a a way that uh, is not in accordance with the English language uh, and with language which would have quite appropriately a very negative connotation, that is going to produce a continued stream of litigation uh, of the sort that we've seen uh, and so this particular element of the Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act, I think uh, ought to uh, cause some uh, concern and perhaps a uh, redefining of that terminology in a way that isn't going to clog up the courts with fighting over um, language and uh, things of the sort that uh, that I've indicated. So that's one element of the Miscellaneous Statute Amendments Act. The other significant, one of the other significant elements of it Mm. um, is that the government has, uh, in this act, uh, is attempting to amend the Motor Vehicle Act uh, in order to uh, have ICBC uh, try to collect fines that people have not paid for COVID related matters.
0: Interesting. Uh,
1: And they're doing that by having ICBC, if this passes, withhold service for anyone. So no driver's license renewal and no insurance purchasing. Uh, and given, of course, that they're the monopoly insurance provider, a uh, person couldn't buy insurance somewhere else. So the idea would be to uh, use that as a way to lever the payment uh, for unpaid COVID fines. Now, there are a few comments about that. Uh-huh. First of all, there's a much more direct way to do that, and it's hard to understand why the government hasn't utilized this. But uh-huh. we have the provincial government sending checks to people for either 500 or or $1,000 dollars. Uh, As a COVID relief measure. And so, surely, if you've got somebody who's uh, been convicted of uh, breaching COVID uh, safety uh, measures, why are we then mailing them a check for $500 or $1,000 and then trying to have ICBC chase them around uh, to recover the money? Just don't mail them the check. Set one off against the other. There's just no reason why you should be mailing a COVID relief check to a person who's been convicted not paid uh, their fine for breaching COVID safety measures. It makes absolutely no sense. Hmm. Yeah, I the wonder other, what the logistics are.
0: Because there must be a reason, one would think, for why they aren't doing that. I wonder what it is.
1: Well, I, I think many things in government, much like the definition of family violence, causes <laughs> ordinary people to scratch one's head. <laughs> what on earth is going on over here? Um I mean, that, that uh, method of having ICBC uh, withhold service to collect fines is used in other contexts. And in fact, the government uses that as a lever to try and ensure a payment of things like spousal or child support uh, or payment of other fines, because many people want to, of course, get their driver's license or insurance renewed. Uh-huh. Although there are two other concerns with that approach rather than the direct one, which would be just you know, subtract the fine from other payments you might be sending. And there be other government payments that can be sent out as well, tax refunds and and so forth. But the COVID checks seem like just the clearest example of uh, what ought to be utilized here. Yeah. But the ICBC approach has at least two problems with it. One is that you're uh, downloading a cost onto the insurance company to try to do your debt collection, Uh, And every time we load something onto ICBC, including driver's licensing or uh, other things of that sort, it's really the equivalent of taking money out of ICBC to pay for other government services. Hmm. Uh, Because some of those functions, like issuing a driver's license, is not an insurance function. Um, We've just decided to lump that into ICBC, and by doing that, the government is then relieved of the cost of needing to issue driver's licenses to people. Um, And uh, we do other things, like we have ICBC pay for police roadblock enforcement, for example. Well, is roadblock enforcement a good idea? Perhaps. Uh, But should that be paid for by the insurance company? Not really an insurance function. Hmm. Um, And so every time we have them perform some other task, we are uh, doing the same thing as what we would be doing if we just took money out of the crown corporation and used it to pay for some other government function. But the second problem with that approach um, is that some people, of course, when they're told, "Sorry, you can't buy insurance," what do you think they do? They just keep driving without insurance.
0: Yeah, I suppose uh, they would one day.
1: Yeah, and that's not in anyone's best interest. We want people paying for their insurance. It's kind of a collective responsibility, and so. Um, I think, well, it's understandable why they're taking that approach because they've used it in other contexts. And, again, it's kind of like the police roadblocks. It sounds kind of tough. Um, There would be a much better, simpler, cheaper-to-administer method of collecting these fines, and it's just subtract the money from payments you're sending out, including the COVID payments. Hmm. Uh, It doesn't seem too complicated. Uh, And so... uh, you know, maybe they're paying attention we can have a, another Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act uh, to include that
0: idea. Well, you never know. The, uh, the day is young, it would seem. Uh, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, let's take our first break. We'll be back in just a moment as we continue going over the latest legal affairs news stories of the week. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan continuing our weekly segment, Legally Speaking on CFAX. I got a text message during the commercial break, Michael, asking a question, why not send the fines as a bill at tax time saying that stopping a person from driving could stop them from getting to work to actually earn money, leading to that person being in a financially precarious position. What do you think?
1: Uh, yes, it can certainly have that effect. And that's actually one of the tensions that exists when they withhold Driver's licenses or insurance services from people for not paying child or spousal support. Um, And uh, there can be, in some cases, negotiations and tension over that because, of course, if you had somebody uh, for whom, uh, you know, somebody who didn't actually want to drive around without insurance uh, and the effect of withholding the license is that the person doesn't go to work any longer, that's not going to do much to ensure that the child or spousal support uh, payments are coming in. Um, and so you can certainly have those adverse effects, uh, and it, it does seem to me that ultimately we want people to pay for their insurance and not drive around um, uninsured. And so yeah. uh, it just there there just are better, more sophisticated techniques. And I mean, the most obvious one is the don't send out the COVID money to people. Yes. Why in the world would you send a one thousand dollar check? by way of COVID relief to a person who has been convicted of breaching the COVID safety rules and hasn't paid their fine. It just doesn't make any sense that the government would uh, be doing both of those things on, you know, in some
0: cases, the same day. Indeed. Our next story I find very interesting because I wouldn't have expected there to be a difference in how members of the judiciary as well as members of the legal profession such as yourself would be entitled to doses of a COVID-19 vaccine given the requirement to participate in the criminal justice system as well as the civil justice system. Help set this up for us. Yes, indeed. Uh, And this uh, came out
1: uh, last week. Uh, What's happened is in Vancouver, the government has decided to send priority access codes uh, for vaccination uh, to uh, judges uh, and to Crown Council in Vancouver. They have not, however, uh, and I should say that's good news, right? Because uh, those people would be uh, routinely uh, exposed to people who often are Uh, individuals who would be uh, high-risk populations, right? They're going to be physically in courtrooms and interviewing witnesses and dealing with complainants and hearing evidence from uh, people who often, unfortunately, the people that are engaged in the criminal justice system are uh, often people that have other uh, challenges in their life that may put them at greater uh, risk of infection. And so that's good news. However, uh, the government has not taken the same steps with respect to other uh, participants in the uh, criminal justice system. They haven't offered the same priority to uh, court clerks or to sheriffs who are physically uh, uh, dealing with people, court registry staff who are dealing with people in person, and they haven't done the same for defense counsel that are, in some cases, doing things like uh, working as a duty counsel, which would mean uh, helping all of the people who don't have representation. Often those people are from uh, marginalized uh, groups that would be at higher uh, risk of infection. Yes. Uh, and it's also the case that many of those other justices and participants would be working in uh, across uh, boundaries, unlike uh, Crown, for example. Like there are defense counsel who would live in Vancouver that would have cases on Vancouver Island and so would be commuting back and forth over here doing those cases or Mm -hmm. sheriffs responsible for transporting people. Like, for example, we don't have uh, any proper facility for women on Vancouver Island who are in custody. Mm -hmm. And so women have to be transported over to the mainland routinely back and forth, accompanied by sheriffs. And so um, that just needs to be covered as well. And it's surprising that uh, they made that selection. The other troubling aspect of it, and of course that occurred, the, that decision occurred the same week as the uh, report uh, leaked uh, about uh, the COVID data that the government wasn't um, sharing with the public. That, yes. uh, uh, that secret report leaked out, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's troubling as well. And, and I should say both of those decisions—you um, know—the decision not to release to the public uh, all of the information they have about things and those sort of uh, vaccination decisions that are not made in a transparent way are both troubling. Um, And one of the reasons why they are so troubling and potentially counterproductive is that even though the decisions, I'm sure, are, are made with the best of intentions, like, for example, you know, while we don't want to tell people, you know, like they do in Alberta, for example, they publish information about Things like the ages and comorbidities that people have who have had severe outcomes from COVID. Yes. Uh, right. What percentage of people suffered from hypertension or diabetes or respiratory diseases or cancer that have uh, died or been hospitalized? That is shared in a detailed way in other places. BC doesn't share it, and the reason for that, no doubt, is to try to influence public behavior. Yes. Right. We if we don't tell people. Uh, that information, it might encourage, for example, young people to comply with uh, regulations, right? Because if you tell everyone, uh, here's a breakdown in age and comorbidity of people that have had these severe outcomes. Somebody might look at that and say, well, that's not me and I don't care about anyone else. And so I'm going to engage in some risky behavior. And so those decisions are likely made with uh, the objective of uh, withholding data to uh, impact on public behavior. But the problem is that people are pretty smart and information gets out. And like it came out the other <laughs> I week, said the problem is people are pretty smart. I want to put that on a t shirt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so what happens then um, is that people realize hey, you, you, you haven't been telling me the whole picture. You've got this report with all sorts of data about where exactly the infections are. Yeah. Um, now, that they've decided to release, but other things in their report, like you know what percentage of people in different areas have been immunized what percentage are eligible for other kinds of vaccines uh, all of this sort of more detailed data that they have but they're not providing what happens is then people who are skeptical about things like taking the vaccine Yes. When, when you have then dr henry or uh minister of health or others come out and say look you can trust us this is safe you should take this it causes people to say well hold on a minute Uh, Aren't you the same person who wasn't telling us the full picture about, you know, who was immunized or how old people were or where these infections were, various things trying to influence our behavior? And it undermines confidence. Uh, uh, And when you undermine public confidence in public health information, you're going to have a long-term negative effect. uh, Even if you manage to uh, modify behavior by not giving people the full picture about, what in fact is going on. And so I would hope uh, that uh, more is done than the the shift that we've seen this week following the uh, uh, data leak last week uh, to provide fulsome data to people about risks and where they are and who's at risk and risk of what. That should be provided in a clear and transparent way. Uh, And I think we need to treat people as smart and we need to treat people Uh, in a way that would respect their ability to look at that information and make rational choices and assume not everyone is somebody who's uh, not caring about others and not prepared to uh, take steps to protect other people. We're just not going to get what we need in terms of uh, uh, public compliance by deceiving people or not giving them the full picture. And we're not going to get there by threatening to withhold their driver's license or insurance and we're not going to get there by setting up roadblocks you need to have public buy-in and trust and you need to trust people that if you give them all of the uh, pertinent information which the government clearly has uh, that they are going to behave uh, in an appropriate fashion and moreover uh, if you do that and you're clear about you know who are we giving the vaccinations to and where have people been vaccinated and where haven't they And where are there serious outbreaks of uh, illness? And if we are transparent about those things, um, you are much more likely to build trust um, and uh, get the sort of compliance that we need. Uh, The the solution is neither is it an enforcement solution or a threat uh, solution, nor is it a uh, withhold information that you think might cause somebody to act in a way that you don't want. Uh, over the long term, that is genuinely harmful. And so uh, I hope that that approach changes uh, for the sake of all of us, Uh, and in particular with respect to the vaccination uh, decision that they made. uh, I hope they are clear about why they've done that and what they did and why they haven't done other things so that there can be questions asked and scrutiny
0: about it. Doing it in secret and not telling people is not a uh, wise long-term strategy. Indeed. Although it feels like all the strategies that we've adopted so far are not sustainable over the, over the long term. I feel like we're in one of those long distance car rallies that you see on television from time to time going, you know, X number of hundred kilometers. And I can see the finish line in sight. And our car is falling apart. Its engine's almost totaled. There's a one flat tire. Things are falling off. And at this point, I'm saying just get us across that line before the car falls apart. I think that's the best I can hope for at this point.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I would say it's a noble effort, right? But, uh, you know, the the approach of being uh, clear and truthful and uh, complete in terms of what you're telling people is, uh, I think, over the long haul, a good way to keep that car rolling. Indeed. Um, Even though you might think in the short term, if you don't tell somebody about some problem or other or what the actual risk on the road is, you're going to somehow improve their behavior Uh, over the long term. That's corrosive. So hopefully uh, we get uh, an increase in transparency Uh, after the the embarrassment the government had last week.
0: As always, the way that you clearly and calmly elucidate these matters, Michael Mulligan, is greatly appreciated. Thank you for your time as always. Always a pleasure. Stay safe and uh, look forward to talking soon. All right. Have a great day. Take care.